I only go to get my parcel and they'll ask me, are you busy tonight? I say I might be playing Xbox, I've caught chicken pox Or any other excuse, they could say there'll be a man breathing fire Tyro walking a high wire, no I never mean to be rude I'm never really interested, not even when they've instead it Unless they say there's free drinks and food Welcome back to episode 6. Can you believe it? Getting ever closer to double digits, magic number 10 of the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. I am excited to tell you that this week we have spoken to Eric Gwantz from King's College London. Nothing that we do in higher education can ever be kind of micro-focused on just one thing because it cuts across so many different fields. It cuts across pedagogy, it cuts across welfare, it cuts across disability, race, gender. So on this episode, we discuss the topic of equality, diversity and inclusion. Now, like I said at the end of the last podcast, I'm not sure about you, but I'm certainly not an expert in this area. However, I did have loads of wow moments recording this episode with Eric, and I think Rob did too. He talks passionately about equality law and the basics. So if you don't know much about that, this is a great episode for that. He talks about recruitment, language, the way we use language and how we talk about disability, access and participation. He also talks about something that Rob was really passionate about, which is gamification. Tell us a bit more, Rob. I love gamification. I'm obsessed with gamification. I think the thing is, for me, gamification is essentially kind of what it says on the tin it's taking something that's assessment based and gamifying it so instead of just having an essay or having a presentation that there's an element of a game involved in your learning so as a a good example is you know you're you're given a, a multiple choice situation instead of just saying a b or c then you might structure it by saying a and then a will lead you down a different path to if you'd said b and it kind of then follows like a role-playing game through the way you go through the questions and it's just a good example of where you're looking at something and changing the way assessment is done and me and eric had a had a bit of a discussion and i touched on that briefly i mean i could i could make an entire episode out of this and i may have to at some point but it's just one of the topics we cover. I don't know about you as well, but I'm not sure how we managed to cover quite as much as we did in about 40, 45 minutes of discussion. But there's so much in this episode that, yeah, it's just a really engaging one and, and so many topics covered. Yeah, I think we could definitely go back into this episode, take a few of the key points that came up and then just make them separate episodes in of themselves. I think the key message this um, episode that you will find is that overall we're looking at the barriers that may be in place for some students and just down to the structure of HE in general in the UK. That there is, you know, the word structure is the prominent word. So I think have a listen to it. Let us know what you think in the comments. Don't forget to share it with your friends and to retweet it. But we really hope you enjoy it. We think it's going to be a useful one and one that you can apply into many aspects of what you do in your daily work. With us tonight, we have Eric, who's from Cyprus originally, but currently lives in the UK and is working at King's College London. He has several years experience working across welfare and community building capacities in other universities and other educational settings. We do also have something in common with Eric, albeit he has achieved his, so we feel slightly jealous of him. He has a postgraduate degree in education management from King's College as well. 
He has previously worked as a resident assistant at Edinburgh University and later as a senior residence associate at King's as well, where he managed a team of RAs there and has held roles across the spectrum of student engagement and sustainability and also worked for the National Union of Students, working on the teaching excellence framework at the Office for Students who are the regulator of higher education in England. As you can probably tell, Eric has a pretty wide experience at this point. Currently works in equality, diversity and inclusion. By day, works to enhance inclusion initiatives at King's College London. And then in the evening, works as a support worker for disabled students. Not only that, but on the side, sits on the mental health and race-related working groups within the NHS and Mental Health Foundation. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. We are very grateful for you giving up some of your precious time, as we can see from your bio. And uh, yeah, welcome to the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. Yeah, very happy to be here. And yeah, I think the things I've done are a bit of a mouthful, but really I've just given some input, student input um, and staff input wherever I could. So yeah, lovely to be here. As we mentioned, you do clearly have a wealth of experience and not only that, not only in higher education, but across various other sectors as well. Um, but it's always quite interesting and something we discuss quite a lot with guests on the podcast is how people actually end up working in student services and student affairs because so many people tend to fall into it. Was that something that happened for you or is it something that's always been a passion and always been an interest? I think I've definitely fallen into it as well. Um, no surprise stories here. Um, in that, I was studying quite a scientific degree in Edinburgh. I was studying linguistics and French, and didn't really have a student side in my in my life. But then I became a student representative in my degree program and just started talking about education, higher education, thinking about how to improve the university system, how to improve the teaching in the classroom, how to make our lessons more accessible. And then when that combined with some of the experiences I had as a resident assistant, I realized I'm really into this social science, the human side of things. And then that's how I ended up kind of moving away from linguistics and language to education management, something a lot more businessy and humany, I think. Isn't that interesting how, you know, undertaking an RA type role and uh, a student rep type role that that led you, you know, you got involved quite early, somebody kind of Put, put in front of you the opportunity to apply for these positions you engage as a student and that's actually determined your career today I find that fascinating I think one of the great things of being a student rep is you get thrown into very serious discussions very quick because there's only so many students representing an entire cohort an entire department an entire faculty at times and you find yourself at least i found myself in in a room with heads of department external examiners external investigators just making policy making some really high level policy with very experienced people and i think that was a great motivator for me to pursue kind of system improvement, education improvement, higher education in general. It ties in quite nicely to a, a subject we discussed quite heavily in the last episode, Rebecca, actually, I think, in insofar as students becoming staff, it tends to be a very common route for people in student services where they have some kind of taster of experience as a student and then move to being staff. 
Yeah, absolutely. And also I'd say, um, you know, given the times that we're in right now, I'm not going to mention the C word, guys. We're going to try and not do it in this episode. But given the times that we're in, um, there's an awful lot of conversation around students, particularly SU sabbatical officers, not being engaged enough around key decisions that are being made within universities that affect students at large. So, you know, Eric, when you talk about being thrown into uh, big meetings with important people or key stakeholders in the university, what were the kind of topics or things that you were discussing back then? What was coming up that was really important that you were campaigning for? What were students telling you that they wanted fixed, essentially? I guess there's always a difference between what the department wanted me to work on and what I ended up working on because I am the kind of person who as a student rep was seeing things that people hadn't noticed and kind of pursuing those areas and trying to make improvements in those areas. So for example, in Edinburgh, I remember there was a significant work around signifying, uh, sorry, simplifying the degree program regulations because the students would go onto their degree regulation portal and just not understand how their marks added up, what percent everything was, what were the conditions on which one might not pass their course. So it, there was a lot of discussion around kind of simplifying policies and advice. But then on the side, I did work quite a bit on things like inclusion again. Inclusion started popping up quite early because I realized that I had disabled friends who didn't have a great experience and I started to explore my own disabilities and realize that mm, this system looks a bit too rigid for someone who needs flexibility. And so that was when I took on some more accessibility work. And I guess another thing that's really common in student rep um, job description, is that the word, um, kind of role is student socials and kind of building, bringing the student voice into the staff for uh, and I remember organizing a lot of kind of socials with staff and students to kind of try and break the ice and get more students to students who weren't reps to voice their opinions so I think it's been a very varied portfolio and I really loved every second of it really and I guess that your experience as a student and being a student rep kind of progressed you then to move into higher education formally once you once you graduated and uh, was your role in Edinburgh as a as a RA one of the first steps that you took into higher education was there anything before that I think my undergraduate experience as a whole at Edinburgh which did include the RA job and the student rep role kind of combined to introduce me to higher education in general and I think the RA side of things really enriched my skill sets and kind of experiences from a welfare perspective because um, unlike some other res life set outs, the RA role in Edinburgh does have quite a bit of welfare elements. So I did end up, you know, being involved in different sorts of, you know, student support scenarios and that kind of improved my understanding and passion for well-being, welfare, mental health. And I think I combined the more systems improvement passion from the student rep and the welfare passion and for my personal disabilities to kind of bring it into a whole new level of holistic higher education, um, you know, nerdiness, some sort of, you know, something like that. 
It's interesting the term you use, Eric, holistic higher education. Now, holistic is a word that I use quite a bit. I know my previous role, my my old boss used to give out to me every time I said the word holistic, but it is something I'm quite passionate about. What does holistic higher education mean to you? And is it something that maybe you explored when you were undertaking your postgraduate degree in education management? Credit to my mom for teaching me that word, by the way. She She is a big fan of being a holistic person and having holistic skill sets. Um, And I really do agree with you, Rebecca, in that nothing that we do in higher education can ever be kind of micro-focused on just one thing because it cuts across so many different fields. It cuts across pedagogy, it cuts across welfare, it cuts across disability, race, gender. You've actually explained it quite nicely there. and You've listed numerous things that what it cuts across. And that's, all, that's always the understanding, I go, I guess, and the meaning for me. And then it's how you apply it um, and that it, apply it in a way that it actually affects students' lives in a purposeful way. Yes, I guess one thing that really kind of highlights my passion to do holistic work is what I ended up doing with my postgraduate degree because I obviously did I did courses on say digital education and then I did courses on social justice but then for my thesis I explored leadership and human resources so kind of looking at that student experience staff experience higher education in general it's really interesting to see how these different aspects combine and they're all equally important in everyone's experiences because if staff are not happy, students are not going to be happy. If students are not happy, they're going to give make you know give staff a really hard time. If the sector isn't responsive to staff's needs, staff are going to go on strike and students aren't going to have education. So I love that interdependency and I think that's what holistic really means in this case. I think it, it just sort of pays testament to the dynamism of the sector. I think it's something where so many different interfering factors are happening all the time and although it can sometimes be frustrating because sometimes some things are completely out of your control it, it kind of is also when if we're all sort of sat down and told to be really honest about why we do what we do is partly why we do it is is the unpredictability and the interdependency as you say it's something that is quite exciting and i think you do have to be a certain type of person to engage in that and want to see that and and involve yourself in all of those elements because it's you know working higher education is not very straightforward it's you have to know a lot about quite a lot of things so I think it's it's something that potentially sits in all of us and actually I did want to touch on something that you mentioned it's something we briefly were discussing prior to us hitting the record button which was your postgraduate degree obviously uh, we mentioned in your bio that you have a degree in education management and Obviously, as we've mentioned, me and Rebecca are currently studying for an MA student affairs in higher education at Anglia Ruskin. And we kind of had a very brief discussion previous to starting the podcast. And it was around whether you feel that that degree had been able to be used effectively whilst you're in higher education, how the sector views qualifications versus experience. And I think we, we kind of touched on that, but I wanted to kind of see now that we're formally recording what your kind of view on it was, because it's quite an interesting look on how the sector behaves. Do you, do you feel that that MA has been recognized properly by the sector or do you think it, it, it's too experience heavy? I think definitely there is an issue in the UK recruitment field that 
your experiences in formal employment are recognized a lot more than the qualifications that you gain. And I see this because I am in my kind of mid-20s now and I, you know, I have a lot of qualifications because I started quite early going to courses, improving my knowledge on different things in the world. But, and I, and I have a degree in education management, which one would think kind of now equips me to have a managerial role in higher education. But whenever you try to apply for a manager, managerial position, the job description, the person specification just immediately makes you unqualified because it kind of asks for extensive experience managing a and a complex institution and all of that which you know is very off-fitting because clearly i have a degree in education management i have done a lot of large-scale projects to obtain that degree i've solved critical i've illustrated critical thinking i've illustrated you know research skills i've illustrated reasoning skills problem solving skills but it doesn't seem to be enough to actually get you jobs and i I'm quite kind of sad and angry about this because whenever you open up a job description and you look at the person's specification, it will usually say something like a degree is required, like any degree, no one cares. You just have to tick that box and then and then come 10 other requirements like, you know, strategic undertaking of large scale projects in an extensive department in a very large institution. I'm like, I don't have that experience, but I can do it. So how do I show that to you, which I so far haven't been able to really because all of the many different experiences that I've had in you know NUS and OFS have been fixed term roles and that's when I think it comes in because we do have this fixed term culture as well in the UK which means that you can get good experience but it's often short-lived and it doesn't give you lifelong kind of permanent job security or any guarantees so I don't want to put you off from finishing your degrees but <laughs> I hope that um perceptions will change around what how valuable it is to actually have a degree and especially you know well all sorts of degrees I don't want to really distinguish between them I think you raise a very valid point and it's something that partly inspired us to put this podcast together and I'm sure Rebecca will agree with me is that there is somewhat of a vacuum of professionalization of the sector and we, we have met a lot of people from the US and, and had a lot of discussions, particularly from the US and North America and Canada around student affairs and student services, but also higher education in particular. And it's just a completely different world there. Uh, qualifications are required in specific fields. Our degree at Anglia Ruskin was created by an American who who saw how the American system works and wanted to bring that to the UK deliberately to try and help professionalize things. And I think that there is a there is sort of a strange combination of things where higher education, you are expected to have the knowledge and and kind of personality of someone who would undertake a degree in the field. But you could do it if you've been in the banking sector for the last 20 years, because you may have more project management experience. And, and that is a strange dichotomy. I, I don't I still quite don't quite understand that. I think people don't recognize that doing a doing an doing a postgraduate degree for example the amount of skills involved in that is exactly what is needed in a job because you have to kind of find a problem you have to hypothesize you have to find a way to address it you have to try and address it you have to evaluate how you've addressed it 
you have to revise your ways, you have to consult people, obtain data. It's exactly what we do in the current workplace, but it just doesn't seem to be enough. <laughs> so I don't know how that's going to change. Maybe this podcast might have some slight influence on people. Let's see. So Eric, you're currently working in KCL and you are working to enhance inclusion initiatives, which is something we know you're very passionate about. Could you tell us a bit about the projects you're currently working on and how they came about and perhaps why they're so important to KCL? I joined King's College London as a student. That's where I did my postgraduate and then I kind of stayed on while I was working, while I was studying anyway. Um, we do like multitasking. <laughs> um, but I just got stuck in because I really appreciated how I really appreciate the kind of civic mission that King's has in that it has a strategy it wants to make the world a better place it has a dedicated team which only look at kind of how we can give back to society so I think value wise I'm very much aligned with King's which is why I've stayed there for a long time now for two three years and even when my contract expired I didn't leave I just found another job in a different department and from from diversity so I think it all starts with the 2010 Equality Act, which is kind of, I just wanted to set the basics for anyone who might not be in the field. It's it's essentially UK law and it kind of requires institutions to promote the inclusion of different protected characteristics and and it, particularly members of its community with those protected characteristics. So legally, we define those as age, disability, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, sex and sexual orientation. So this law offers us, I think, a very solid, clear framework to work with. And we can look at, you know, are we doing enough to include, say, People of all ages, are we doing enough to include disabled and non-disabled people? Are we doing enough to support parents and carers? Are they are our policies flexible? Is our are the jobs we're offering flexible or are we too focused on offering full-time jobs which might discourage parents, carers, women um, specifically? And um, we do have quite a large team. I think we're 10 plus now, and everyone else, everyone in the team has a different portfolio. Uh, they, we have colleagues specializing in gender, colleagues specializing in disability, colleagues specializing in race. And I think, so I'm kind of at the beginning of my EDI practitioner journey. So I joined the team as an intern and I'm kind of trying to learn more about EDI in general, but also improve kind of my specialties because I feel like I'm kind of leaning towards disability, race, mental health at the moment, and just working on those whenever I can. As projects-wise, we do have, I'm personally involved in supporting the staff, diversity and inclusion communities. And I'm not sure if different universities, I'm sure they have them. I'm not sure how well enough they're advertised because until joining this department, I didn't realize they existed. So we do have, for example, uh, gender Equality Staff Network, Disability Staff Network, um, LGBTQ Plus Staff Network. And a lot of my daytime kind of is focused on supporting these communities with their events, whatever they want to achieve at, at, at the university. And another really big chunk of projects that we do is kind of external accreditation, which 
I have my own kind of opinions on accreditation and kind of awards and all of that, which we can discuss as well. But we do spend quite a lot of time on Athena Swan, which is a gender equality accreditation, the race equality charter, which is a race equality accreditation, and things like the UK Workplace Equality Index by Stonewall. Um, yeah, so it's a mix between policymaking, um, working with individual faculties to improve the processes they have, working with the student experience teams to improve the student experience. It's a very varied role, and I have very different portfolios, you know, very different tasks in my portfolio, which I really enjoy. What I absolutely love about everything you just said is that I, and I think hopefully some listeners too, have just learned like so many new phrases and learned a little bit more about EDI because it's certainly an area that I know a little bit about, but I would say I am by no means an expert whatsoever. And so for me, this episode is very much about learning more about this area, um, which I've just done in just a little snippet. So thank you. Um, I know you're also passionate about inclusive communication, disabled students, and I understand the term inclusive communication, but I don't know much about what that looks like or how that's implemented. What does it mean to you, Eric? And, you know, what does that look like when we intersect that with the requirements of disabled students? Because I imagined it's a huge area in of itself. I have an interesting relationship to language because I did study linguistics at Edinburgh for my undergraduate. And that was when I started thinking about language, thinking about communication, thinking about language biases that we might have. And just looking at some of the kind of the way language has come about and how it might be problematic from an EDI lens. So for example, how we talk about mankind for example which kind of has a focus on man um and i did spend my undergraduate degree looking at things like cultural studies you know i analyzed lullabies in turkish and looked at what cultural values they conveyed and i looked at how the french media reports feminism and it's always been a really strong interest of mine looking at language and inclusive communication and how that intersected with disability was when as a King student I was I received a scholarship with three other disabled students to travel to Germany and spend a week there learning about what it means to be disabled in Germany how are disabled people supported or not supported in Germany and I prepared a workshop uh, for that program on language and disability and it all started there and since I did that I've kind of delivered training to you know universities private sector company a private sector company it's really exploded which is really great it shows that people want to learn more about inclusive communication especially with disabled people and I guess what it looks like to me is I can summarize it in very short in a very short explanation so I talk about the medical model of disability and the social model of disability. Those aren't concepts that exist before me. I haven't created those, but they essentially talk about different ways in which we talk about disability and disabled people. And the medical model will use terms like diagnosis, deficiency, disorder, eradicating, impairments, fixing people, curing people. And then we have the social model of disability, which looks at how people's impairments are, in a way, how society 
disables people. So the social model of disability kind of shifts the the focus on society and advocates that disabled people can't participate in society not because they're sick or they're disordered or they need fixing it's because the society around them doesn't create an inclusive enough living working breathing you know space for them and through these trainings i have been looking at the connotations of different ways of talking about disability so for example i really like talking about the word special needs which we use all the time, scientific field uses it. I'm pretty sure the government uses it as well. Um, and what does that mean? I mean, when you say that a disabled person has a special need, that alienates them because you're calling them special when all disabled, well, all I as a disabled person want to be is to be normalized and included. I don't want to be called special in any way. Or things like accessibility and making things accessible, which, a lot of people use, but I think it does connotate the expectation that we just want disabled people to be able to access things and not necessarily participate in things. So whenever I talk about, for example, event management, I will always add a line saying, if you require any adjustments to enable you to access and participate, because it's not just about being able to listen to a class on lecture capture. It's also about being able to contribute to that class, having a microphone, this, the classroom having the appropriate systems for you to be able to contribute to that discussion. So I've been really passionate about kind of moving us from accessibility to participation. And different things I look at, I explore things like everyday common words that we use, like learning disorders. and. I ask whether we should be talking about learning disorders or learning difficulties or learning differences. And I conclude by saying that we should be talking about learning differences because we are all different in the way we learn. And it's really no use labeling people as disordered. Um, and that's why I promote the big words like neurodiversity because they help us think about people as just diverse people and not single some people out for just learning differently. Um, yeah, I do. I, I can go on for ages, but I, I often share my personal experience of, for example, growing up with um, an eating disorder, which I no longer use as a term because I like to say disordered eating in the sense that when you look at the linguistic structure, one of them focuses on a disorder, the other one focuses on eating, which just happens to be lacking structure. So I think it's just those little tweaks that you make to your language. And you might know this from your experience in res life, things like committing suicide, we use a lot. And the word commit has connotations of committing a crime, committing a sin. So we now, I now advocate for using things like attempting and completing suicide instead of committing suicide. So it's just getting people to think about different connotations of language and how we can change and tweak the words we use to kind of come across in more inclusive ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's really interesting to hear way it's kind of being approached because in a in a very different but also very similar way it's it's kind of how we had this discussion again in, in a previous podcast where your the use of language infers how society then behaves and i think language is often 
underestimated in its importance. So, for example, I work a lot with international students and we had a debate uh, a couple of episodes ago with Joe um, from Kinfolk, Joe Bloxham, and we were discussing the use of Mandarin and signage, for example, in institutions. So having a sign in English and having a sign in Mandarin and why there is resistance to that and why there can be issues in some institutions regarding the use of that kind of thing. But for me, it's it's exactly that. It's promoting the use of language. And the more you promote a difference in, in language, there's so many nuances that it produces that it, it sort of lays the foundation for a, a behavioural change, which ultimately is what what you're kind of looking for in some of these examples. It's not just to, you know, it's do as do by you would be said. That makes no sense at all. It's, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's that sense of saying, you know, if, if I'm going to treat somebody a certain way, there's no point in me saying one thing and behaving in a different way. And it's having that foundational language linguistic basis that actually begins to change people's behavior and perceptions and attitude. And I think that that is really crucial and very often underestimated. I think I really agree. And you're really right about looking at the wider implications of language and language does trickle down to policy and that policy gets adopted by institutions and what does that say about how a disabled person is going to feel if we have all these non-inclusive words being used about them i think another um another really common one is disclosing a disability and i'm kind of really against that because i think the word disclose has kind of very ominous connotations and it's like almost like it's something that needs to be hidden in the first place and you're disclosing it and it's a big deal. And I just want to be able to come to a point where we just share our disability instead of disclosing it or declaring it, those really big words. And I'm really glad to see that people are responding positively to this dialogue and more and more people contact me and ask me to, you know, go and speak to their teams about it. It's just starting a conversation. And as I always say, in linguistics there isn't we don't we don't follow a prescriptive approach you're not going to come out of this by with a list of use these words and don't use these words this is right and this is wrong it's just starting a conversation and describing language and thinking about connotations and i love that really i think people are um responding to it and changing their behavior like robert said i still think in the uk it's a little slow there are still plenty of um examples that i've come across one that kind of strikes me um is that i've been to a number of conferences in the uk and i went to one in canada last year and at pretty much nearly every presentation and particularly during the big welcome segment when people were introducing themselves, the speakers, they would say, my preferred pronouns are. So they'd say he, his, or she, her, hers. I've never seen anyone in the UK conference do that. Now, we are seeing more people put their preferred pronouns on their email um, at the end of their name and their, say, address or contact information. I have it on my Twitter account, as, of, as do thousands of other people. The bit that you said, um, Eric, around um, suicide, committing suicide is a massive bugbearer of me and I will always crack someone and tell them why it shouldn't be that. Um, And even the term successful suicide, there's nothing successful about it. It's a suicide. It's complete suicide or they took their own life. Um, So I think we're getting there. There's, There's more I would love to see happen and I there's more that I would love people in positions like ourselves and more senior take a lead in that because sometimes they're afraid 
to do it, particularly organizations in the private sector. I remember having a little mini campaign, one of my many, many campaigns around, well, let's just put our pronouns, our preferred pronouns on our email signatures because it normalizes it for other people where it might be a bit more difficult to do so. And, and coming up against people for that and the question was always, well, why? And I was like, well, it's free. It costs nothing. Why wouldn't we do that? Like our students are changing. The demographic is getting more and more diverse. You know, they're identifying as non-binary. We have trans students in accommodation. Why wouldn't we do that as an organization? So there's there's more to be done. But like you said, people are changing slowly but surely. I definitely agree. I do want to point out one thing. I was corrected by a colleague the other day, and I do want to share that knowledge. Um, I was told that... Um, it's better to just say someone's pronouns instead of someone's preferred pronouns um, because gender identity is not really a preference. It's just who someone is. And I think that ties in with, for example, the effort we make in saying sexual orientation instead of sexual preference. It just, I think when we say someone's preferred pronouns, that kind of prompts people to then say, you chose it. You can just choose to be something else then. Um, but I'm, I'm not saying that to like judge you or anything, just to share knowledge. And I'm really grateful to my colleague who also shared that with me. Um, uh, no, I think yes, that's that... a really good point, actually, and certainly something now that you've shared that it, it makes sense with me. I think what's difficult probably for the sector sometimes is that it's constantly, the discussion on this is constantly evolving and constantly changing. So sometimes it's hard to keep up with it unless you take an active role in keeping yourself informed. Um, and hopefully this conversation right now will do that for people so the knowledge goes to more people. Um, so it's a, it's a really good point, actually. And, and, and thank you for sharing that because I've learned another thing today. Um, I think definitely that's what EDI is about and the discourse changes and we can't always generalize things. I mean, one member of the BME community might have a different opinion to another member of the BME community. So I think what I'm learning right now is that it's kind of okay to make mistakes as long as you kind of apologize, learn and move on. It's, you know, we, we can't know everything we're learning we're trying to learn which is what makes a difference i think yeah i think it's it's that open-mindedness and respect and i think it, you know it's one of those things where you know there are so many conversations about about the choice of certain words the language used the the way we dictate it and it in a, in a way that's not a negative way, but it for me, it makes me very, very sad that we're having conversations like that because it infers really an underlying lack of respect just for an individual's identity. And, and that's just quite difficult to accept at times that, that we do have a society that can sometimes be quite inherently biased against an individual's identity. And that's a shame. But as as we say, we're moving, taking good steps towards that. And, you know, it's something that very recently as well, probably in the last sort of five years or so, has, has really taken hold in higher education. And it's nice to see some institutions in the higher education world sort of take a bit more of a lead on this sort of thing and to really respect that more. And it's great that the sector is, is doing that. Interestingly, though, I suppose we do need to look at the other side. And I know we've we've touched on uh, equality and inclusion a little bit there, but I'm also interested looking at disability and disabled students. We've kind of already looked at some of the things that are happening in the sector, but I'm kind of interested for your opinion, your view on some of the things that 
potentially the sector is is not quite getting right or perhaps need to pay more attention to with regards to students with disabilities in their institutions is there anything that you see that's that's kind of quite frequent or has quite a major impact that you think is not potentially being picked up on or needs to be addressed one of the reasons I am in higher education and I suspect many others are is that it's imperfect in so many ways and we're so passionate to change that to improve that and definitely I think things can change and radical changes are needed and I do use the word radical quite often in the sense that I think higher education does need quite radical changes and one of the one of the things that one thing I can talk about again is the medical versus social model of disability. I think if you look at the current ways in which universities operate, they very much subscribe to the medical model of disability, which I don't want in the sense that if you have a disability, you have to go to a doctor, you have to get a sick note, and a doctor who is who is not you has more authority than you in deciding whether you're disabled. And that is again where the social versus medical models of disability come in. And we need to move to a system whereby students can self-certify. We trust students who say that they're not well. And it, it comes with, I think, a bigger revolution, that revolution, that's a big word, but a bigger change that's needed around just flexibility in education, just not sticking to all these rigid deadlines and word counts and all of that, which I think triggers a lot of kind of arguments as to why we can't let people self-certify because everyone else had just one week to complete an assignment. But why i mean just give them a month you know it's you know if they need a month just give them a month if they decide to take an ass assessment you know um what's the official word i need here you have summative assessment and you have the other one formative yes <laughs> if, if if someone wants to take an assessment formatively just let them do it if they want to write their own question just let them do it so i think a lot of the barriers that disabled students face also stem from higher education being very structured and rigid and it's and not creative in general um, another thing i think that's the issue in higher education is the lack of awareness around neurodiversity as a concept. We still talk about learning difficulties and learning disorders. We still, we still kind of single people out for thinking that they're different. You know, they're sorry, they're um, they're different in a kind of their minority. But I think we need to move to this perception that there's neurodiversity. Everyone is neurodiverse, and everyone just has individual different needs. Instead of singling out someone with autism or someone with dyslexia for being disordered or having difficulties. And I think it does tie in, as I say, with just how rigid our ways of teaching and assessing are in higher education. I always, I'm really amazed that I did a postgraduate degree and all I did to be assessed was write five essays, which is so boring, especially when you're someone like me who just, first of all, prefers the verbal media, um, prefers creative media, not just huge 16,000 word essays. So I've always been supporting radical changes like teaching students by games, moving to gamification, allowing students to shadow senior staff members and writing a reflective piece on it, which contributes to their degree, kind of scrapping this um, marking system, which kind of 
encourages competition and just introducing pass or fails in UK degrees. I mean, I, I, I realize I sound like a dreamer, but I think these are really core radical changes that would make higher education way better, way more creative and way more fun for all students, including disabled students. I don't think you're a dreamer at all. Um, I love um, anyone who's got a bit of a utopian outlook because I kind of see myself a bit like that sometimes. You know, why can't we think of the best case scenario? Um, why can't we try out some uh, radical ideas? And, you know, if we thought that we weren't going to be reprimanded if it if it failed or didn't work out the way we hoped, um, what kind of things would we try? I think it's really interesting considering the circumstances that the sector is in right now, um, having to force teaching online and assessment online or change the ways in which we do assessment. It's allowed people to test out new ideas because they've had to do it. They've had no other choice. And before, if you thought about doing that, a lot of people would be quick to say, we can't do it that way. That'll never work. Um, we haven't got time to do that. There isn't the money to do that. But when you're forced to do it and you're put in that situation, it's amazing what can be done in the short space of time. It may not be perfect, but if we continue working on it, we might get to a place where elements of what's been delivered online um, could actually be implemented for the long term for years to come. I think this is a very timely moment to bring the C word in because I think COVID-19 has shown us that for staff and students, institutions can really be a lot more flexible in so many ways and it's possible and you can assess someone online, you can let someone work from home, you can you can let a student have a week instead of a day and it really isn't a big deal. So I, I really agree and I really hope that the day after lockdown ends, we don't just go back to how it was and we just really sit and think hard enough how we can learn from the benefits of this lockdown as well. Yeah, I agree. And also, I'm, I'm so glad you talked about gamification because it's one of my sort of biggest things and one of the things I really believe in the most. Uh, it, it sort of harks back to looking at the school system. And, and look, this is a bit of a general generalization, but largely speaking, we we... We overtest our children. That's a whole other discussion. But largely speaking, with children, they learn in so many creative ways. They engage with things in in creative ways. They're they're encouraged to be creative in the way that they're assessed. And it, it seems to me that the older we get and the further we get in education, the less and less creativity is called upon. And I do think that that is in itself problematic for all students, not just any particular group of students is just something that kind of makes me quite sad. I, I feel we've been relatively lucky in our degree insofar as for us, we've had a few essays here and there. We've had poster presentations. We have actually had opportunity to create a piece of digital media and do a reflective piece on things. We've, we've had opportunity to write essays as well. And of course we now have our final project. So I feel relatively fortunate insofar as I think that our assessment criteria has been quite different, but it does seem to be very common now that we're seeing very traditional ways of approaching it. And I do hope, as you say, that the one benefit to come from all of this, amongst hopefully some others, will be a variety and, a, and an acknowledgement that not everything needs to be the way we saw it once. Um, and I think if if that is done, then I'm hopeful that it will have a trickle down effect to to lots of other areas, not just in assessment. I think I'm having a very kind of emotional moment because I found people that agree with me. <laughs> and um, I, I think we can't have a chat on education and not bring in Finland. I think, I don't know if you've known, if you've heard about this, but I'm really 
intrigued by what is done in Finland. And from what I remember, it's called phenomenon-based learning, where they scrap this idea of just learning about math, economics, you know, history in different classes. And they just take one phenomenon like World War II and just dissect that in different aspects like let's look at the economic implications let's look at the implications on history let's look at the implications on politics and i think being open-minded to innovations like this and bringing in things like augmented reality um to our learning um i think would be really useful and it could it would also appeal to different senses as well like instead of telling a student about a country it just get them one of those you know augmented reality headsets and show them that country make them experience that country in 3d i would love that and i think those are the kinds of discussions that all those vice principals and chancellors need to be having and it's sad that they're not <laughs> yeah and we spend so long say i mean it a very just a, an example that's just popped to my head but it's it's probably one of the most typical examples is students who have dyslexia are given extra time in exams or given readers or, or whatever it may be and it kind of is like we, we look at dyslexia and we go okay how can we how can we fix the person to bring them up to a level playing field in our typical assessment rather than looking broadly and going okay well how is our assessment actually benefiting that person and our wider student body? Could we not do this differently? And I couldn't agree with you more. I think we we live in a world in UK higher education where things are so have become a bit stale, dare I say, and a little bit predictable. And I do think that I, I could I could I as well could talk about this for ages about why I think that is and why so much reform is needed. But ultimately, I do hope that it has maybe unlocked something even in a generation that aren't at that level yet or aren't at that age yet where they've gone oh i can learn differently and everyone around me has to learn differently as well why aren't we doing this and i think that that hopefully will start to bring that that new phase of people into the sector as well because it needs groundswell as much as it does individualistic ideas so i'm hopeful it does bring that but yeah i couldn't agree with you more it's it's definitely something that that would also just again it's it's going back to everything that if i'm if i'm right in my assessment that you've discussed is this idea of it's not about bringing an individual with a different ability to the same level as everybody else it's actually saying well what are we giving all of our students is it even appropriate for everyone should we not be looking at different ways of doing things so that that doesn't even become a question I definitely agree. And I think we did say we would talk about TEF a bit. And I think the teaching excellence framework was a good step in the right direction around which which kind of which prompted institutions to consider things like how do we embrace creativity? How do we make our students happy? How do we bring in diversity and inclusion into our curricula? How do we be different? And that's why I think something like the teaching excellence framework might be a good way forward in prompting institutions to consider these radical ideas. But at the same time, I do have my reservations around kind of attaching an award to everything so that the institutions will do it. I mean, it's the same with Athena Swan. I know, I know 
people who will value Athena Swan because it raises their status, not because it achieves gender equality. And that's kind of why I'm split between these official accreditation methods, which kind of inherently have a good purpose, but then can turn the whole value and core value into a checkbox exercise. So I don't know, I, I remain divided. I mean, everything you've spoken about, Eric, has been absolutely fascinating. There's so much there that I personally have taken from this. And I think Rob has too, and probably will take snippets of this for his own research for his thesis, I suspect. Um, but I think you've shared so much about your insight that has me pondering lots of questions to take away afterwards, and hopefully for our listeners too. So I think this is a really timely um, moment to kind of wrap up because otherwise we'll just be here for three hours because everything is so fascinating. Great. I mean, that sounds okay to me. I definitely would love to chat for ages and you really seem to be kind of on my, what's the word, on my... Wavelength. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) it. Yeah. But I'm just really grateful to you for offering us this space and starting a conversation and just showing how passionate you are about not just finishing a degree, but also contributing something creative to the sector. So thank you to both of you. So we promised you a really interesting episode that covered lots of different topics under the umbrella of equality, diversity and inclusion. What stood out for me was, well, I learned not to say preferred pronouns. So I was very grateful to learn that. And I will do my best going forward not to say that because actually Eric had a really valid point and why you wouldn't say preferred pronouns and why you just say, what are your pronouns? I was really struck by his points around access and participation. So when he's organizing events, he will put out some comments to students and say, please let us know what we can do to ensure you can access, but also participate in an event. It made me think about my res life days when maybe perhaps we should have put that information on a poster or in some email comms. What's the life for you, Rob? I think for me, as being an, an English language graduate, it was the language discussion. And I think, you know, I really agree with Eric. The language is one of the most important tools that we have with students and with fellow human beings. I think it's so often misunderstood or not quite given the level of importance that it should be given. You know, there's, as, as, as I mentioned, there's always discussions about should we have something in Mandarin or should we have something written in different ways for different people? And you know, it it becomes such a meta discussion that it's almost irrelevant. Really, language has the ability to be massively inclusive. And I don't think it's quite given the the fundamental appreciation it should. And I really appreciate Eric's synergy between language and education and student affairs. I think it's often overlooked and is critically important. Yeah, I think he drew on some really good examples and you could tell he had a passion for that. And I never really thought about language and the synergy of that like you said in HE but I could see comparables or it it made me think about it a lot differently and I think hopefully it will make you listening at home or in your car or wherever you may be right now and it might make you think a bit differently about the work you do and how maybe you can make language more accessible or change it in a way that's more relevant. The other thing that struck for me was also talking about the barriers that are in place due to the structure of higher education and how I suppose in some institutions we might be stuck in our ways or not interested in changing things as much. But actually, I think this this COVID pandemic, yes, I've said the word, um, has forced us to do things a bit differently. And hopefully we will bring a lot of that into the future. 
And so that brings me to our next episode, number seven, where we're going to speak with Claire Slater from the University of Bristol and Ian Munton from Staffordshire University. We'll be talking about their experiences in higher education, but also touching on the important subjects of sexual violence, health, consent, harassment and associated campaigns that they've been involved in and perhaps ran on each of their retrospective campuses throughout their careers. A really interesting topic, no doubt. It'll be very broad. And we're looking forward to having that interview with them. In the meantime, we hope you're doing well and stay safe.